I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And guess what's available for pre-order? My upcoming fourth book, No, is a four-letter word. And guess where you can order it? That's right, my Amazon store at Amazon.com slash shop slash I am Jericho. That's right. You can go to Amazon.com and pick it up. The book comes out on August 29th. But get your pre-order in now at Amazon.com. Go look for No is a four-letter word. It's up there right now, available for pre-order. You can go check that out. And today, in continuing with uh, part of my lineage, starting off in Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, Alberta, we're talking all about stampede wrestling with ross hart he's the 10th out of the 12 hart kids the second youngest boy right in between brett and owen and of course we would uh, be remiss not to mention the passing of smith hart uh last week that is the uh oldest of the hart children and smith is also a talk as jericho alumni a great guest controversial figure legendary character within the wrestling business uh smith left his mark and uh godspeed rest in peace smith hart thanks for doing this show and uh, we appreciate you and uh, wish you well wherever you might be so uh smith is gone but ross is here ross hart all kinds of stories about stampede's run in the 80s he was heavily involved in the promotion as the producer of the TV show at that time when I got into Stampede Wrestling, when I started watching. Uh, his brother Bruce was the booker, but Ross had to drive wrestlers to the shows. In fact, you're going to hear all about the scary car crash that Ross had while driving Davy Boy Smith, Chris Benoit, Sumohara, and Carl Moffat to a show through the uh, Canadian Rockies. They uh, almost plummeted to their deaths. He's also talking about Owen Hart's early days breaking into the business in Stampede. What happened when Dynamite Kid came into the promotion 
is the booker and you hear when and why Stu Hart finally decided to close Stampede Wrestling. Ross Hart is on the way. But man, the Judas video, over 6 million views on YouTube. Thanks to all of you who checked it out and made it go viral. Still number one on the charts in a lot of countries, including Saudi Arabia. Still top five here in the States. Let's see what's going on right now. If you haven't heard it, where you been? You're going to hear it right now. This is Judas right here on Talk is Jericho. Personified, and I will drag you down and sell you out. Run away. I am cold like December snow. I have carved out this soul made of stone, and I will drag you down and sell you out. Embraced by the Fight. What have I become? 
that's Judas already a live favorite, and you know we'll be playing it when we head to the UK this fall on the Judas Rising, a UK-European tour, starting October 27th in Birmingham, England at the O2 Academy 2, Dublin, Belfast, Chester, Manchester, London, Sheffield, Glasgow, and Newcastle in the UK. Then uh, November 7th, we head head over to Amsterdam, Aschenberg, Pratel, Roncade, Rome, Vienna, Munich, Essen, Hamburg, Genk, Belgium on the 18th of November. And we're doing VIP meet and greets and mini concerts for all of those dates. You get a chance to uh, see Fozzie up close and personal before the show even starts. So the VIP experience from Fozzie, one of the best out there. Get your tickets at FozzieRock.com. Come rock with us. Uh, all right. Ross Hart and Stampy Wrestling on the way. Talk is Jericho. All right, so we're here in uh, Calgary, which is, a, a, we have a, a WWE show this weekend, but you're talking about wrestling in Calgary. It's synonymous with the Hart family and Stampede Wrestling. And here, uh, I've got Ross Hart with me here. And you are, what number of the 12 are you? Well, I'm actually 10th out of 12, Chris, <laughs> and the 7th out of the 8 boys. Okay, so so Owen was younger than you. That's right. I and, was between Brett and Owen. Okay, oh, really? Yeah. All right. So the rest, uh, did you have, were you ever like the, did you have to break up uh, fights between them? Or you like uh, the... No, I had my share with both of them, though. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you're kind of yeah, stuck in the middle, yeah, right? Exactly. If yeah. it's like fire and ice, and you're the lukewarm yeah, water. That's right. <laughs> I, either way, I I would lose because I could I couldn't beat up Brad. I would always lose to him, and, and if I did, her and Owen, my dad would uh, knock the crap out of me. So oh, because Owen yeah. was kind of like the uh, well, Owen was five years younger than me, and then uh, by the time he was about nineteen or twenty, I I, I couldn't kick his ass anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk about Stampede, and more specifically, when I was growing up in Winnipeg. There were so many uh, wrestling companies that were coming through, like on cable channels and stuff. Obviously, there was WWE, and there might have been some um, NWA, but there was Montreal. There was Vancouver. But for me, Stampede Wrestling in about 1986 is where I really started becoming... I loved the WWE, but Stampede really started hitting home about how much I loved the technique of wrestling. It was very innovative for that time frame. Yeah, it really was. Um, you know, the WWF had, uh, as, as it was known then, um, uh, had become launched, and uh, some of our best stars like Dynamite and Davey and, and, and Brett and Jim Neidhart had gone to WWF, but it gave the opportunity to Owen and Chris Benoit and uh, some pretty big Japanese stars uh, like uh, Jushin Liger and Hiro Hase, Brian Pillman, uh, the opportunity to, to, to break in and make names for themselves and... Uh, you know they they really did you know and uh, for a smaller promotion uh, we we developed some fantastic stars and I, I think it was just uh, the work rate and a lot of these guys had sure. great talent and charisma too. Well, what was your role uh, in the company at that point in time? Uh, I was more behind the scenes. Uh, right. I, I was uh, the producer of the TV show, so mm. I would I would try to edit down the the show when we filmed it uh, on Friday nights that evening because it had to air the next day. So it was mm. almost not a live shoot, but we had about five six hours, you know, to uh, edit the oh, show, wow. and cut it down to uh, forty seven minutes with the, the commercial breaks, and and we always were over. We always had about an hour and ten minutes of footage because the, the wrestlers would go excessively long in their interviews. And some of the matches were over, so I always had to condense it and uh, have it ready to air the next uh, day in, in, in Calgary. And uh, 
most of the, the major markets. So, so would you have to kind of get this tape done and deliver the tape to the yeah. t- television studio? Exactly. Yep. And I, I would do it right at the uh, the global uh, TV station where Red <laughs> Whale and working was the uh, TV commentator and uh, director of sports. And we had to have it done by eight or nine the next morning just so they could uh, program it and uh, put all the commercials in. So it didn't give us a lot of time to do any fancy editing or uh, cuts. But uh, you know, it, it was still well, a pretty good show when it was finished. Well, let me and it was. A great show. It's funny because I just started. I, I, uh, I can't remember. Somebody had a link posted online or something, and it was leading to one episode from that from that era. And suddenly, you go down the YouTube wormhole, and I must have watched maybe twenty of them in a row, and remembering all these great moments and stuff. But so, if you're producing the show and editing it, how are you editing the show? Because it's a weekly was it was it a weekly live but so every friday night so you have to show a little bit of the matches but you can't show all the matches because then people won't come to the show right no that's right so how do you decide what's going to what you're going to put on tv um you know, we we had to be tactful about that, Chris. If we if we show too much, then then people wouldn't want to come to the live right. shows. You know, to to see the matches. So we would usually pick up the the last seven or eight minutes of of uh, the semis and main events, and some of the earlier matches weren't weren't squash matches, but they were matches where the guys you're trying to build up would be mm-hmm. put over pretty strong. But we always uh, showed their finishes. But uh, we we seldom showed a match from start to finish. Um, because our matches were longer. We didn't have too many squash matches. Uh, so we usually pick the match up and progress and show the last uh, five or six minutes, which was kind of abstract from all the other TV sh- shows in wrestling where they just show squash matches for one or two minutes from start to finish because mm-hmm. somebody go- getting over really strong. And our approach was always to have the matches a little more competitive or evenly matched but still get our guys over stronger and then show probably four or five minutes of the main event and uh if it was something that was uh too bloody or or it was uh something that was uh gonna involve a strap match or a ladder match or something like that got a gimmick yeah we would have to say it's it's uh gonna be too brutal for television that usually appeased ed wellms he he hated violence he hated the sight of blood and he didn't want want that on there so so we we usually said these matches won't be on tv so the fans would would come in droves to see the you know but let's talk about this because it's very interesting to me you just brought this up is that you're talking so so in calgary being such a strong because stampede wrestling was a very strong presence in the calgary community that's right in in the fabric of, of basically the entire city and ed whalen had a lot of influence in 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 the show and he was the announcer of the show but he also you mentioned he was the head of sports sports of uh, the global tv network and that was the uh the network that aired our sure. show. You know, so did he have a lot of influence on the show? Because if he wasn't involved, you kind of might lose TV. Yeah, absolutely. Um, earlier, we had lost Ed Whelan. He had, he had quit the show because of excessive violence or he, what he thought were distasteful angles. And uh, he Was thought, there one in particular why he quit? Uh, yeah, the one with Archie Goldie and Bad News Allen in 1983, uh, where uh, Archie Goldie's... Uh, pseudo son Jeff was uh, pile drived uh, on the cement floor by Kerry Brown and uh, Bad News Allen used the fork on, on Archie Goldie and uh, anyway there was bedlam and chaos in, in the crowd uh, uh, fans were just rioting and throwing chairs in the ring and anyway uh, Bad News uh, 
got hit by some senior fan. I guess the fan swung his cane at him, and bad news went and grabbed the guy and uh, choked him, and right in front of the boxing wrestling commissioner. So <laughs> he choked an old man. Choked an old man, and it was right on TV. Oh you my know, gosh! Cameras picked it up. Like it's one thing the photographer shouldn't have even uh, right. shown, but he did, and you could see it right there on TV the next day. But uh, but it was so intense. And Archie Goldie's interview, and it's on YouTube if you ever. That's the stomper. It. The stomper. It was so intense about uh, his son's neck being broken. That was going to be the end of his wrestling career. And uh, um, he, he was going after Bad News and Kerry Brown, and he was going to do whatever he had to to get even and um, put them away because they, they just ended his son's career. You know, And it was so intense, so convincing. Uh, Ed Whalen uh, quit the show. He just it, it was almost too surreal for him. And uh, he just felt the show had reached a, a low in violence, and um, and it was it was just just uh, too over the top for Ed, mm. and he ended up quitting, and um, the promotion kind of went downhill from there because you lost TV. We, we didn't lose TV, but um, uh, the crowds really went down in Calgary. Uh, the 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 commission ended up uh, suspending my dad's license for about three weeks and it was just when bad news was going to work with the stomper and the, the following friday there was like 2200 fans outside the pavilion waiting to see the stomper fight bad news allen and uh the boxing and wrestling commission very uh deliberately they suspended Stu's license to promote that day just because he said his wrestlers were too out of control and there's too much violence and uh uh, and, and in particular, they cited bad news for, for fighting outside the ring and attacking mm-hmm. a fan. So uh, th- probably what was the biggest angle like in 10 years of the promotion uh, was was nipped in the bud because the, the commission suspended Stu's license and uh, he couldn't run in the pavilion that night. And um, anyway, he had to try and run on the Sarsi Reserve, which was... About 40 miles out of the city at that time. Oh, and, uh, so just, he had to go know, outside of the jurisdiction yeah, yeah. of the Boxing Commission, go to the yeah, reservation, yeah, basically. And, yeah, and rely on local advertising, you know. And like back then, there was no uh, yeah. social media or internet to, to get the fans' uh, attention or let them know. So it, it pretty much killed the angle, you know. And then Bad News had to leave a few weeks after for Japan. So, but just, uh, and then Ed Whalen quit. Like, he, he quit the promotion. So with all that negative publicity, um, it, it really was a, a blemish on the promotion. Like, we, we never really recovered until Stu reopened in 1985. Because uh, this uh, is after he sold it to Vince, and this after, has been well documented. He sold right. it to Vince. That's when you mentioned that Davey and Brett and the guys had gone to WWE as part of that deal. That's right. And then kind of reneged on the deal. Yeah, he did. Uh, he... he he paid my dad, I think, $25,000 and then was supposed to pay uh, the balance of that. And Stu was supposed to get 10% of every live show in Calgary. And, and the total was supposed to be like a million dollars or something? Uh, so I, think, I thought it was supposed to be $500,000. Oh, so he paid twenty five grand. Yeah. And, and he never paid anything <laughs> to Stu beyond that. And uh, Stu had helped him get TV in all the major markets in uh, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Winnipeg, all our markets, Saskatoon, Regina. Um, sold him his rings and they, they had about uh, five or six of our rings and, and basically access to some of the best talent in the world you know so, sure but in any case when when they first tried running here in 1984 they they fell flat the wwf uh uh sort of before hulkamania had really uh, caught on yeah. um, you know and it was sort of a delayed reaction in canada and they had the maple Le- I, I think you probably remember the maple leaf tv shows billy red lions yeah with billy red lions <laughs> i think they filmed one of hamilton or uh, yeah and yeah. you know basically just squash matches the fans didn't uh buy that very much you know they they didn't uh want to see just one-sided squash matches and 
um, even though there there were great stars, there 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 were there weren't any uh, competitive matches on TV. So for the first year, they fell flat here. I remember they they brought in Andre the Giant and um, Angelo Mosca and sent some pretty big names, and and they were drawing under two thousand fans uh, mm. in the Saddle Dome. Wow! And yeah, it's they, they finally stopped running after about six months, and Vince basically encouraged Stu to start the promotion up again and uh, revive some local interest in it. But, uh, but he reneged on uh, his payments, you know, so. So what what made you guys decide to to open up again in 85? Uh, I think, well, my dad wasn't very happy with uh, the the WWF product. So they they came here and ran about six times over eight months and the crowds just got smaller and smaller. And, um, you know, and I, I think he just felt that the local fans in Calgary and Edmonton deserved something better. And, uh, uh, would really support the concept of, of live wrestling again, weekly shows again. And um, he approached Ed Whalen again and, you know, reassured Ed that, uh, that, you know, we would minimize the level of violence and uh, blood that was shown on TV. And that appeased Ed when, when Ed was back on board to commentate the show. And really there was nobody but Ed to do it. Was it know? hard to get Ed to come back? It was, you know. How, it, how, what, did, what did you, what convinced him to come back Oh, I think a little. The, the cash. I think the cash for sure, and <laughs> but but uh, some pretty strong uh, guidelines that that there wouldn't be uh, um, violence, there wouldn't be blood, you know. And and Ed always uh, had had problems with that, but but we had to tame the show down considerably. Well, and also too, and here's another thing from watching some of those episodes that I mentioned to you, watching about fifteen, twenty of them. Ed Ed would freely get involved if he felt the heel was was out of line. He would get up and like just. Walk in the ring, push a heel, oh, yeah. grab a chair. Like he was like, if a Michael Cole tried this, or, or or you know like Corey Graves or somebody in the WWE now, you would get fired, you would get your ass kicked. But Ed had this kind of free reign to do whatever the hell he wanted, right? He did, and and he was a total, totally baby face commentator. Yeah. So if if he saw. Skullduggery. If he saw John Foley interfere, uh, Bob Brown, or Bob Brown, or yeah. somebody, he he would jump in the ring and he would he would go after that heel, you know. And sometimes he just couldn't control his emotions. Quite often, Ed was he kind of knew what the finish was for the the television side of it, but but he really didn't know uh, what would lead up to that or the intricacies of the interference or the sure. or uh, the foul play, and uh, he would react, you know, in a babyface fashion, you know. And sometimes so that was that, for real. It was a shoot. Oh yeah, quite well, pretty much, yeah, yeah. you know, and because uh, because he he was a voice for the people. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. So, so he's very unique in that sense as a commentator. You know, he was the people's commentator. So, um, but when he when he agreed to come back and host the show again, my dad uh, started back and. 1985 so it was about a year layoff and uh uh you know it gave us a chance to really um launch some, some new stars like like chris benoit like owen uh like brian pillman um and, you, you and, had an amazing roster you mentioned yeah. pillman and owen and benoit huge stars but you also had guys like blackman beef wellington johnny smith johnny was smith. awesome uh and here's another guy i think is very underrated we'll talk about all those guys but watching um, um uh, mike shaw muck and sing probably like a very regional heel in that he's a territory heel. He couldn't take that act to WWF most likely. But in this in this world in this territory, he was he was an unbelievable heel. You hated that guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, his real gift was his uh, microphone ability. He 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 did some of the best interviews, the best promos. Yeah. Um, he was just like a big bully. Um, he, he would cut down uh, the people. He would cut down uh, the fans. Basically, just say you know they're. Uh, uh, minimum wagers, you know, that, that uh, hate him because he's successful and he's got everything it takes. Meanwhile, to be- he's a big, fat, 
kind yeah. of balding guy. There you go. If you hadn't seen him, if you haven't seen this guy, and then they would chant at him, toilet bowl. Yeah, and, and I mean, that was great because he reacted that and hated that. Um, you know, it got over great, and they, they sold lots of pictures too. So I know. actually took a couple uh, on this, this character I'm doing right now. I was talking to Vince about it probably three, four months ago, right when I was in the midst of watching this stuff, and we were talking about it, and I was like, you know, I've been watching Stampede Wrestling, and this Mike Shaw, I'm not going to sing, I took some of his traits as a regional heel, but took it to a... Uh, a national worldwide territory like that would be and no one no one uses those little tricks yeah but he had them you know and it was it was such such a great heat getter but you would never understand it unless you were actually here watching in calgary yeah absolutely and you know because he he was uh he was large he was oversized he was obnoxious and that was kind of his personality sometimes too like <laughs> yeah if if uh in real you life. rubbed mike the wrong way you know he, he could be pretty quarrelsome pretty irritable but uh but he loved working with my brother Owen. Loved uh, great Bruce matches. And whatever Bruce told him to do, he did. I, you know, I think Bruce deserves a lot of credit for molding and guiding Mike because because he had been here previously just as Mike Shaw and really never got over that grade. He was kind of a mid card performer, but when we transformed him into Muck and Singh and had him uh, join the Karachi Vice with Gamma Singh, you know, who was probably the most hated uh, heel in the territory, you know. And, and let's talk yeah. about the Karachi Vice. Yeah. It was it's, <laughs> that, that, that's what really got mucking over, though. And you know, so we no longer Mike Shaw it was Muck and Singh, and uh, he was with with with, with Gamma, Gamma Singh, Singh yeah. and, and and then. Uh, uh, Abu Wizal. Abu Wizal, and uh, then they made Gary Albright uh, Vulcan Singh. He was sing Vulcan with, Singh, yeah. yeah. So, and and it was great. It was kind of a, the heel faction. It was region. like a Pakistani yeah. heel faction. Yeah, and right. it was, it was uh, interesting. Gamma was really just a Sikh East Indian, had been a kind of an undercard baby face for years. But when we turned him into a a villainous Pakistani heel, you know, it, it got over great, you know, and he played the the role well. Um, but but Mike just but Mark, Mark and Singh just added that. Uh, that that element to it, just a, a bigger, heavier, uh, bullish <laughs> right. shield that always cheated to win and was completely obnoxious and disrespectful and rude to everybody. You had two white guys uh, uh, masquerading as East yeah, Indians. That's right. And that was the heat. And then you had Abu Wazal, yeah. who um, I, I, I'm not sure. I think he was probably East Indian. Yeah, right? he's Lebanese. Yeah. Yeah. Lebanese. Yeah. So, but he would just kind of go in there and speak gibberish, this little, like, you know, weasel, yeah. we, weasel, get it, guys? Yeah. So it was like this great the heel faction where if you needed a, a team, a, a heel to win, he had all these guys to help him Absolutely. cheat to win. So it was perfect, you yeah, know? Yeah, it was. And, uh, it you know Muck and I think deserves a lot of credit for launching Owen's career because uh, he whatever Owen did he was able to 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 sell and catch Owen for you know like it was the the hardest I'd ever seen him work and you know Owen had some incredible matches uh, but if it wasn't for for Muck and Singh getting him over as a babyface uh, I I think it would have taken him longer to get established and launched but they, you know and they had a great feud for like three four years you know uh, before Owen well, went to the WWE. and the thing is too so it was about 86 i'll never forget the video it was hearts on fire by it's a brian adams tune that's right and you guys had done like a highlight package of this owen hart and i'd never seen this before i, I was i was a wwf fan i loved savage and steamboat and the rockers and those type of guys but i'd never seen uh the moves that Owen Hart was doing and that was which basically convinced me that I wanted to get into wrestling wow and most of the stuff Owen was doing the base for that stuff was was muck and sing yeah and it was absolutely. all of this uh, uh, lucha type stuff and acrobatics and all this really cool stuff I'd never seen it before and, and it, it was introduced to me via stampede wrestling yeah it really was and um, you know it, it, it put 
both of them at a, at a whole new level, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, and it was amazing to see, you know, Mackin Singh was probably 350 pounds, and you know, Owen was uh, was able to do his uh, his leapfrogs and his. Uh, uh, we used to call it the bum flip. He'd grab his hand, yeah, jump on the top rope, yeah, bounce do, on his ass, and flip yeah, over. Yeah, and then, you know, and do the back flips and all those things. And and uh, you know, it, it was well crafted. It really was, but uh, it, it it was great. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Talk is Jericho. So let me ask you this. So, so you're involved as the producer of the show. And was Bruce the booker? Bruce was the booker for, for the most part. Uh, you know, he, he was booker basically right up until about the end of 1988 when uh, Dynamite Kid had left the WWF and he came he in came and back. took the book for for about six months, which which didn't go very mm-hmm. well. But, but Bruce, for the most part, was the booker for, for that whole time period. And, and what was Stu's involvement? Um, well, uh Figurehead, kind figurehead. Of, he was promoter, you know, and sometimes when he wasn't wasn't happy with the angles, he just said, "All I do is sign the goddamn checks," you know. But, <laughs> uh, you know, just at times, he, you know, he, he didn't uh, approve of Bruce's uh, ideas. He thought they were over the top, or uh, uh, you know, had, had gone too far. And I think he was a little bit wary of uh, of Bruce, uh, especially after the bad news stopper incident. And Bruce got a lot of. Uh, blame for that and he really shouldn't have it was just uh, uh, a lot of things that were sort of out of his control and, and i mean it just got over so great it was just so intense but uh it got that reaction from the fans and the media and and ed well of course but so Stu was always um uh kind of an unwilling promoter uh with, with bruce booking but bruce deserved a lot of credit he helped uh, get a lot of guys over he, he sure knew did. how to get uh baby faces over because they they would get uh, screwed by the heels, uh, you know they would get so much sympathy because uh, they had been screwed by John Foley or or Abu Izal or the Karachi Vice, and um, and and then you know finally uh, they would get some kind of payback or revenge, and uh, it it all got over very well in the end. But uh, you know Bruce, I thought deserved a lot of credit because he had some very innovative angles. Well, and not only that, you talk about you know know how to get guys over. I think we've already mentioned half a dozen guys that went on to get you know become national stars in WC. 
WCW or WWF, WWE. Um, but when you're talking about, let's, let's I'll throw you some names. You can kind of give me some background. Like, yeah. so you're talking about Owen in '86. That was basically his pro debut. Was in Stampede, or he, had he gone other places by the time he was in Stampede? No, you know it's interesting. He'd worked uh, under a mask on some spot shows, and you know, so he didn't blow his uh, alias, his mm-hmm. own heart. Um, and in fact, I think he had one of his first matches in Winnipeg in 1986. Uh, we ran jointly with Tony Condell for a couple of shows in Winnipeg and Brandon. And kind of a disaster. Uh, they, they didn't draw too well, and I think Tony shorted us on the gate quite a bit. But, of course uh, he did. Yeah. Uh, but, but Owen uh, actually worked on, on quite a few of the spot shows and uh, um, waited until you know he, he was ready to make his TV debut. And then I remember in 86, Bruce had blown uh, his, uh, his knee tore, tore his ACL in a in a tag match, and uh, we had to put Owen in Bruce's spot right away just because uh, Bruce was injured and out of action. And uh, just, just because Owen had, had worked for four or five weeks just, just doing some spot shows and working under a mask, uh, you know, he, he was ready. And, you know, he was, uh, he was green, but he had, he had some really good guys to work with, you know, some, some veterans like Kerry Brown and Duke Myers. And then uh, when he and Ben Bastrab worked with the Viet Cong Express, which was Hiro Hase and uh, another Japanese guy named Fumihiro Nakura, um, you know, there were just some great matches, and Owen was just such a fast learner. But uh, I was, say, uh, was he a tape watcher because he's doing stuff, or was he just innovative? Because I had never seen that stuff either. He stole it from other countries, or he just came up with this stuff on his own. Um, I, I I think he he had watched a lot of Tiger Mask, the original mm-hmm. Tiger Mask uh, in in Japan, and uh, I remember though uh, when when he wanted to do the backflip off the top ropes. You know, I, I think the only one who I'd ever seen do that was Edward Carponche, which was probably like about 20 years before right. that. And uh, Owen just uh, decided to do it. We had the ring set up in uh, our backyard. And um, I think Phil Lafon or Phil LaFleur had tried it once or twice, but, you know, he never never got the, uh, the height or the yeah. great landing, but Phil could certainly do it, but he never really... Uh, uh, did it too often, you know, and I think he's just just afraid he might land wrong or you know you look bad and be embarrassed. So Owen uh, just said, "I'm going to try it." Got in the ring and and had a couple of spotters the first few times, and then after that he just had it down pat. So he so he used to do the uh, the backflip off the top rope, and then uh, the other one where he uh, you know did the. Uh, where the guy would hold his wrist and he'd leap on the ropes and backflip off and then it, do yeah. a you know, hip toss. You yeah, know? Yeah. So, so, you know, a lot of those were, were, were his own, but he was definitely inspired by some of the high flyers. So he's obviously a natural, though, because he's coming into his dad's, his family's promotion. There's a lot of pressure on him as Hart. You have that last name of Hart. That's a lot of pressure in Calgary and a lot of expectations. And so you're saying he came in pretty much off the bat and, and made a big mark for himself. Uh, so he must have been a natural. Yeah, he was, you know, and he, he'd wrestled a lot uh, as an amateur, like he was wrestling for the UFC Dinos at the time, and Stu had high hopes that he would maybe go for the Nationals or something like that, but uh, when, when things fell into place with professional wrestling and uh, he got over so well, and uh, again, it was it was filling that void that had been left not only by Brett, you know, who who was in the WWF by that time, but uh, Bruce and Keith, who were who were aging, you know, and uh, still wrestling, but but mm-hmm. uh, you know, not uh, the young heartthrobs they once were, and even Dynamite and Davey, who had left the promotion, well, Owen uh, just sort of filled that void, and he got over so well, he, he never really did go back to university and get his uh, teaching degree or or pursue the amateur wrestling, but uh, you know, the the opportunities were there, and he, he made some great money and had the 
opportunity to go to Japan and Mexico and Germany and, and all these places uh, to travel. And then, of course, the WWF. Sure, in the meantime, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about uh, about a young Chris Benoit who show who, who the first time I ever saw him, obviously, was in Stampede. Fan of his right off the bat. And did, tell, tell us, did he just show up one day? Was he like, was he a fan? How did he get involved in Stampede Wrestling? Yeah, it was interesting. He, he just showed up one day... Um, couple of guys that used to help us uh, run the promotion in Edmonton, it was Bob and Mike Bulat, and their dad had uh, been sort of a co-promoter with Stu, and they brought Chris down and said, Mike Hammer had been training him in Edmonton, and Mike was a really good teacher. He was uh, kind of a degenerate in other ways, but he was actually <laughs> a, a pretty good uh, teacher, really knew uh, how to wrestle well, and uh, um, and uh, was, was kind of a, a quiet, understated type, but he took Chris under his wing and I think just basically taught him... Uh, rope work and basics but you know i don't think they even had a ring to use probably just uh, a mat somewhere up in edmonton but uh um but he obviously spotted something there you know like chris just had a natural talent and i remember chris he used to come to the shows in edmonton he would he'd show up there and he idolized uh dynamite kid and uh and then and i remember he was just uh, probably about 14 or 15 years old and he was very quiet very shy and we'd come to the matches every saturday in edmonton but he was too shy to uh you know, asked if he could meet any of the wrestlers, and everything was very uh, kayfabe-ish back then. We never let fans get too close to any of the wrestlers, but uh, uh, but I remember him coming to the matches, and and uh, you know, and he just seemed to be a very dedicated fan, and he obviously uh, w- was inspired by by Dynamite. And uh, um, when Mike Hammer broke him in, it was sort of during that period just before we started Stampede again in uh, 1985. Um, Mike Hammer had, had taught him enough just to uh, show him the basics, and and uh, he was probably about 180, 190 pounds, but had a great physique. You know, he was right lifting weights yeah. already, and and they brought him down. And uh, Bruce and I were working out with some other guys, and they said, "Well, let's see what Chris can do in the ring." And and you know, he just had that natural flair. You know, he was just a fast learner, and um, again, he, he he had that start, and then uh, he, he started working out with us. Uh, uh, at, at our house and, and with some other wrestlers and uh, Bruce knew he, he could get over very well and we needed some new young uh, heartthrobs and yeah. uh, some new baby faces and uh, he just sort of fill, fit, fit that spot and at that time Chris was really uh, polite and uh, respectful you know I always found him to be that way but uh, uh, he never asked for too much and always appreciated whatever uh, you showed him and you know he wasn't uh, wanting mm-hmm. a lot of money he just wanted the opportunity to break in and uh, get that experience I think he would have taken anything uh, we could have offered him sure. so and uh, he stayed at our house for about a month and uh, that gave him the opportunity to work out in the dungeon and uh, use our weights and uh, when we uh, started the promotion up uh, um, you know we just said let's see how he gets over and he actually broke in before Owen about five six months before Owen and uh was was a well-established babyface but uh you know he, he was just one of those uh natural talents uh, that came to us so what would a guy like you know a starting guy like chris or you're not like a beef wellington or guys like that what would they be getting a week would they getting 400 a week 500 a week uh yeah i think uh they started out probably making about 400 and then when they were elevated or sure. if they won a title they were probably making close to 500 
Okay. Yeah, and uh, I think Chris was making 500 pretty steadily, which what which wasn't great money, but it was steady. He was making that every week, and uh, well, for a young and, guy yeah. getting a chance to live your dream, it's Absolutely. not too bad, right? Yeah, you and, know, uh, you know, and then uh, he, he started getting exposure in uh, Japan, Mexico, and some places, you know. So uh, uh, with, with a lot of these guys, uh, the, there were the opportunities to, to to go to Mexico or Japan. A lot of them, of course, were thinking about the WWF, but. Uh, for, for for the majority of them, uh, you know, it would have been too soon for them. You know, they, sure, sure, sure. They wouldn't have had quite the, but, the look but, or the season. The, but, the yeah. thing about, about Stampede, though, uh, is it was such a great combination of, okay, American style, English style, Mexican style, Japanese style, European style. Sure. It was a real mix. So you said that's why so many of the guys went and could go, could go somewhere. Like, for take a guy like Johnny Smith. Nobody in the States really knows him. But in Japan, he had a very long, successful career because he basically, I mean, he broke in in England, but but he kind of earned his stripes here in Calgary, learning how to work. You yeah, know? And, and I think a lot of these guys were truly international workers. They could go just about anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they could adapt to the Lucha Libre style pretty fast in Mexico. Uh, they could work the round style in, in England um, and then get booked in Germany and Austria, you know, and places that, that you sure. probably worked. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, if they were lucky, they would get booked with a New Japan or All Japan, one of the major offices. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and if they did well in their first tour... You know, they're always uh, sure. brought back and they had the chance to, to make really big money and get that exposure. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Talk is Jericho. Was there some guys that, that worked through here that you thought were really good that didn't get as much of a, didn't get as high up the ladder as you thought they might have? Um, Underrated, I guess would be the right word to say. Yeah, there might have been a few. Um, you know, Hiro Hossi did really well with us, but... Uh, I, th- I wish he had stayed here longer, but uh, at that time there was kind of a, a power play in Japan with, with all Japan and New Japan, and his faction, I guess, uh, with Ricky Choshu's group had gone back to New Japan. So, so um, you know, he was he was getting over very well with us. We just turned him babyface and unmasked him as the Viet Cong Express, and uh, then he went back to uh, Japan there. And uh, I think if he had stayed here another year too, he would have, he would have been more polished, more seasoned. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, so I, I just didn't think he he reached his fullest uh, potential. And uh, Kichi Yamada, Drishan Liger was another one. But uh, when when he came to us, he he was here for about four months, five months. And then uh, New Japan just decided they they needed him back. Uh, somebody else was injured, and they needed him for their cruiserweight or a junior heavyweight was, division. Yeah. And uh, you know, so it was kind of our our loss because uh, you know he, he was getting over very well. But uh, uh, you know, and that that's that was business. Sometimes, sometimes uh, sure you would it was get, out of our control. You would you know? get guys that would come in that you would hope to keep for six months or a yeah. year. But like a hockey team, they'd get called up. From the minors to the majors, you exactly. Know? You know, and and uh, that's who they work for. I mean, with 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 uh, the Japanese office, especially. I mean, they they had no control or say. You know, they if they, if they were if they were called sure. on a week's notice, they had to go back and, and leave whatever they're doing with us here. So so there there are a few there that uh, uh, I didn't think reached their fullest potential. But while 
they're here. They, they had a huge impact on the on the territory. And did you have relationships with Japan where they would call you and say, we have a guy we want to send you? Or was it just kind of a random thing? Or? It was kind of a random thing. Mm. You know, we, we had a really good uh, booking arrangement with uh, New Japan. Um, and they were booking a lot of our, our top guys, including Dynamite and Davey, um, Brett and Bruce and Keith. Because um, we were using guys like the Cobra and uh, uh, I think there was Hiro Saito and Shunji Takano and... Uh, um, a whole bunch of them, uh, especially uh, during the popularity of the, the junior heavyweight division. And then uh, when Dynamite Davey uh, switched and, and uh, left New Japan for All Japan just before a tour had started, which was pretty major news in uh, 1984, and my dad really wasn't uh, aware of, you know, they kind right. of uh, uh, excluded Stu so he wouldn't be uh, implicated in what they were doing because it was, it was pretty... Uh, major news because it was right before uh, their their tag team tournament and they were booked for New Japan and then just before the tour started they show up at a press conference and announce they're uh, working for All Japan. It was a big deal. Major coup you know and uh, um, it you know the follow-up unfortunately was New Japan felt too either was uh, oblivious to it or or, uh, was was aware of it and didn't try anything to stop it and uh, so they didn't really um, uh, book guys directly to us which was unfortunate so uh, Tokyo Joe or Joe Daigo I don't know if you, if you yep. knew him but uh, he he was uh, the agent after that and he pretty much would just sort of individually book guys on their own and uh, you know we, we could have uh, interceded and said you know we we, we want a commission or uh, some kind of an agent's fee if you're booking guys like that but uh, we didn't really oh we really just, no we, we could have I mean just yeah. the, a lot of these guys were working in our uh, promotion and we could have maybe used a little more leverage and say uh we want you to book some other guys because primarily they seem to be interested in, in, in Owen and Chris, you know, and then later Brian Pillman and mm-hmm. uh, a few others. And I think Bad News Allen had some influence there as well. He got uh, sure. a few guys booked. Uh, he initially got Chris booked in Japan. But, but we, you know, we just didn't interfere with that. We just thought if the, if the wrestlers had the opportunity to go to uh, Japan or, or Germany, you know, we, we wouldn't uh, get involved or, or uh, you know, see, seek any uh, – Renumeration. We just we just wanted the wrestler to have that opportunity, and uh, so we um, we kind of stepped aside there. But probably we should have been a little more assertive. And uh, it's kind of you know, the way it was back in those yeah. days. Yeah, it was. I remember uh, my, one of my first tours in Japan. I worked with a guy called Super Strong Machine, and yeah. talking. He was here uh, as what was his gimmick? Yeah, Sunny Two Rivers. Sunny Two Rivers. Yeah, yeah, he was a Japanese guy yeah. playing an Indian. Yeah, like that's a First right. Nation that's Indian. One of Bruce's roles, you know, it was amazing <laughs> because we we had too many Japanese in the promotion right. at the time. Way too many, so we were giving all of these guys different aliases. We had, we said Hiro Saito was from Malaysia, Shunji Takano was from Cambodia, and they're all Japanese. And then with uh, Junji Harada, we 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 uh, decided to make him an Indian, and uh, we we shaved his head, and he had the Mohawk, Mohawk cut, and called him Sunny Two Rivers, and it was great. You know, it's a, probably not very uh, politically correct, no, with you know with with the First Nations people, but uh, but in a lot of the spot shows, they didn't seem to to, to really to notice, uh, right? notice the difference, and you know, and he was a good hand, but he uh, was, yeah. But you know, we 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 had to kind of improvise with a lot of those roles. Otherwise, they all look the, you know the, mm, the same, the same. just they're all Japanese. But uh, and, and a lot of these guys took advantage of the opportunity. They, they, you know, if, if they're asked to wear a mask or shave their head or do something uh, a little outrageous, uh, but it got them over, and um, they, they had the chance to um, get get some exposure. And then uh, you know their their 
their offices in Japan would see, hey, these guys are getting over in Calgary, and uh, um, you know we'll we'll bring them back and make them big stars. You mm. know, so it was a win-win situation for us and the wrestlers. Tell me about, um, and I always heard rumors about this, and, and maybe you can kind of fill me in about. Uh, so, so Jason the Terrible was here. He was kind of doing a Friday Thirteenth hockey mask heel, and his his manager was the Zodiac. That's right. Who always talked like we had like a computer voice. Or, I am the Zodiac. Mask guy. What was the story behind that? Well, and I don't know if you knew uh, the the real person who was the Zodiac was was Barry Orton, Randy's uh, Randy's uncle, uncle right? Yeah, Randy, yeah. you know uh, Bob Bob Junior's uh, younger brother. But uh, um, when when Barry came in, he'd approached Bruce about doing this this role as the as the Zodiac and uh, wearing the mask, and he would uh, make these references to astrological signs and influences and uh, uh, Lucifer and you know he was incredible on the mic he did some of the most uh, powerful interviews I'd ever seen but he uh, we'd cut these uh, interviews uh, just in um, the TV studio on Friday nights and they would just sort of add some uh, special effects some laser lights and this black background but he did the interviews and and, and it was incredible and that's that's really what helped uh, Carl get over because uh, he didn't. He didn't speak. He was just sort of this sure. Jason. Uh, but but, this was, but I, is, I don't even know if this is true. Or not, but was he like? Was he in trouble in the states? And he had. He he came here like to kind of hide out, and that's why he was wearing a mask and had the voice. Um, thing? He he wasn't. Uh, he was in trouble. Unfortunately, he he'd been in a car accident <laughs> in, okay. in the states, and um, it was actually when he was working, I think, for the WWF, and uh, he he'd been charged with vehicular manslaughter oh. uh, he was driving with uh, an underage girl and had a car crash and she was killed um and she was underaged and anyway so his uh court trial was uh, pending and uh, he didn't know what was going to happen if he's going to be convicted or not and, and and he was he got a two-year sentence but in the meantime he came here and uh, worked for for my dad and uh he and bruce uh, collaborated on this idea of him being the uh, the the zodiac because uh, just jason out. needed a manager right. he needed a mouthpiece and it was incredible and that was something that uh i wish we could have run for for a couple of years because we were selling out we were doing incredible business uh and then when um he had to go back for his trial. We had to cut it short. And we ended it. up uh, uh, having him turn on Jason after they lost a tag team match to Bruce and Pillman, and they uh, built it up for them to have this one match. And we could have gone with that for for months and months, or just had them as a as this uh, indestructible force. Sure. It was it was amazing how much they were over, you know. And uh, um, you know, we had to cut it short, you know. But, but it was just one of the innovative things that got over in the promotion. How, how was business then at that time frame, eighty six to eighty eight? You know, uh, up and down, um, but but uh, that particular gimmick was really getting over. So Jason well. and Zodiac Jason got and Zodiac over. Incredible. What were some other money makers for you? At that time um, well, uh, certainly the Karachi Vice. You know, the uh, Bruce and Pillman working as Bad Company. Bad Company. They had a run for like over a year as tag team champions, and it was great. Brian was an incredible was great. athlete. You know what, what an athlete he was, and uh, you know a great talker and. Uh, you know, and, and and for Bruce, it uh, rejuvenated him. You know, Bruce had uh, uh, come back from a knee injury, and um, you know, I, I th- and Bruce was pretty unselfish in the sense he didn't want to uh, tag team with Owen and, and look like he was the older brother trying to uh, ride on Owen's coattails. So he said, "Let's just push Owen in singles because he's getting over great, and I'll tag team with Brian." And Bruce was was uh, mentoring and tag teaming with Brian. And uh, it got over great, you know, for for them. And so, so I think there was some some drawing power there as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, occasionally, Davy Boy and Dynamite would come in and do some shots. I with remember us. this one time, maybe it was the summer of '86, '87, when Brett 
and maybe maybe Jim too, but it was like it was almost like the Hart Foundation versus the Bulldogs, but in Stampede Wrestling. It was. Um, it was actually Brad against Davey and uh, That's what some it was, singles. Right. I mean, we, we if we could have run uh, the. the a tag series we would have, but uh, so Vince is lending you these guys. Uh, Vince kind of uh, gave us permission, um, and that was only because Davey was still living in Calgary at the time, and Brett was. And um, I don't think WWE was thrilled with it because I, I think they thought that it was uh, taking away from what they were doing on on uh, their TV. And at mm-hmm. the time, the the Hart Foundation uh, had just uh, won the title from the Bulldogs, and then Dynamite had his uh, back injury, and he was out of action for for a few months, and. Uh, um, so his wrestling was pretty limited at that stage, but uh, uh, basically Brett and Davey got the okay or permission to uh, do uh, a singles program here for about two weekends when they had some time off from WWF, and it was, hmm. it was incredible because yeah. uh, it was um, you know it was an extension of the the tag rivalry they had there, and uh, they did that they, draw good they, for you guys. Worked here. They yeah. they sold out the pavilion the first week, and then they did like a chain match the second week, and Brett was a heel and. And Davey was the baby face, and it was it was incredible. I, I remember uh, there was a double main event. Rowan worked with uh, Mock and Sing, and uh, Brett worked with Davey Boy, and that place was just packed. You know, it was like it was, uh, and the crowd was just electric. So, what was the capacity of the pavilion? Uh, about two thousand. Yeah. at that time, and that was your weekly Friday night building. Yeah. Yep. So where else did you go throughout the course of the week? Uh, so we'd run Edmonton every Saturday. Okay. And uh, we used to have the sales pavilion, and then before the Replaced that with uh, the Agricom, which was a smaller center, but still a uh, really good atmosphere for wrestling. And then we'd run uh, Regina and Saskatoon usually uh, every Monday and Tuesday, and then a whole bunch of different cities Spot like shows. Red Deer, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat. Medicine Hat was one of our best towns, and uh, Swift Current, Moose Jaw. We were running all sorts of uh, spot shows on um, Indian reservations, hockey arenas, some places like way up in northern uh, Saskatchewan or BC, but incredibly, that's where we're drawing some of our biggest crowds, because those are places where the WWF would never run, and and they never had any opportunity to see live wrestling but Stampede, so quite often we, we'd, we'd get our best uh, crowds in, in some of those smaller places, you know, Okanagan, BC, Montana, you know, and uh, because the TV was over so strong, um, you know, we were drawing huge crowds, whereas, you know, Calgary was a little tougher now because we were competing with the WWF, we were comp- we were competing with the Flames, and that year they went show. Yeah, and uh, you know the Stampeders, and a lot more sports entertainment. And uh, so sometimes it was tougher to draw in Calgary and Edmonton than uh, the smaller spot shows. So let's talk about like financials. So if you're if you're doing these five or six shows a week, was it or was it was it seven shows a week? Oh, quite often six or seven, minimum six. So what show ca- sometimes what, seven. What would you have to make on a week to keep the territory going? Would you have to say we got to make ten grand a week? We got to make twenty grand a week? I mean, was there a certain number that you had to that you had to, to hit on, or was it more of a monthly thing? Um, no, you know, to, and to be honest, I, I knew my parents were losing money. You know, by the gotcha. time they were paying for uh, TV production and uh, vans, you know, to to transport the wrestlers and uh, you know gas at the time and. Uh, you know, and, and and they they always paid guarantees. Like even even if the gates were, you small. never heard people getting ripped off no, in Calgary. No, yeah. you know, you you really didn't. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, so uh, you know, unfortunately, during that four year period, there you know, there it was a losing proposition in, in, in most weeks. Although uh, we we had some incredible crowds. You know, sometimes we were drawing uh, eleven, twelve hundred. You know, which was was pretty big and. You know, uh, Peace River, or Grand Prairie. You know, but uh, huge crowds. Yeah, yeah which which for, which were great. Um, but uh, uh, the overall expenses were were, were pretty tough. Right, and yeah. uh, um, you know, we we were losing money, and uh, uh, 
we we stuck with it until the the end of 1989 and by that time the wwf was running more often and they'd taken so many of our best stars like owen had finally um gone there and chris was chris benoit was working in uh, japan Pillman was in wcw muck and singh was in wcw WCW. yeah we had had lost uh our core of uh our best stars and so it was pretty tough you know so uh, sure at at that stage uh it just wasn't viable to keep running but let's talk, you're mentioning, and then there's, there's a famous story that I want you to tell me about, uh, all the travel that you're doing. You're driving everywhere. Yeah. I was actually, my very first taste of the wrestling business, I was on the ring crew for Bob Holiday in Winnipeg in the summer of 89. And we heard through the grapevine, and once again, there's no social media, there's nothing, that there had been a, a very serious accident yeah. in Calgary, the Calgary Territory, and you were involved in that. Yeah, I was the driver. You were the, the driver. The so tell, yep. tell us yep. about this, uh, about this we horror driving. story. Uh, we were on our way to, just trying to remember now if it was uh, northern BC, I think uh, uh, at the time we were driving through Jasper though, and uh, it was in July and uh, I had about seven wrestlers with me and I was driving. and In a uh, van? In a, in a van, it was a rented van, a budget van. and um, Who was in the van, do you remember? Uh, yeah, Davey Boy was in the front seat and behind me were Chris Benoit and... Uh, uh, Kitahara or Sumohara, who mm-hmm. wrestled for All Japan, um, and uh, Carl Moffat was in the back. Jason, Jason, Jason terrible. terrible, yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, we we were late. We we were uh, late leaving Calgary. We were about an hour and a half late because uh, several wrestlers didn't show up, or they just uh, decided they they weren't going to work. Um, and we were at the Mohawk gas station waiting, waiting for some of these wrestlers to show up. I remember Dynamite Kid didn't show up, and. Uh, um, and so we, well, how, how are we going to run so these shows with, 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 with two of our major stars? You're at the Mohawk show. in Calgary, and yeah. everyone's supposed to meet you guys, and then yeah. you get in the van and yeah. go. Yeah. And so, so guys just wouldn't show up? Yeah. They, well, yeah. I remember Dynamite Kid had, had boycotted the trip. He decided he wasn't going to go. He had had an incident where he had <laughs> attacked my brother Bruce in uh, high level uh, the week before. And, uh, um, you know, and then and you know, and, and Bruce's jaw was broken, and uh, there was a lot of bad blood with with him and oh, dynamite the, broke the Bruce's jaw. Yeah, okay. yeah you know, wow. it, was, it was an unfortunate uh, thing that happened. And uh, anyway, uh, he basically decided he wasn't going to work on the tour, and uh, he and Davey were headlining in the main event. You know, so anyway, uh, we were we were about an hour and a half late, and uh, uh, we were driving um, toward Jasper, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was driving to make up time, and uh, I hydroplaned on an icy section, and uh, I, I was trying to steer the, the van back in my lane, and it just went straight, and we had a head-on collision with a station wagon that had a trailer. And uh, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Are you on, like, on a mountain road? Yeah, on a mountain road, and it was a sharp curve. You know, like, this was summertime, but, but it was uh, in the mountains, so the roads were icy, and, uh, you know... There was no no warning of that whatsoever, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, speed certainly was uh, a factor in the accident, you know, sure. For, for sure. You know, I was, uh, um, at the time I was probably driving 90 kilometers an hour and speed limit was 80, you know. Yeah, But, but bad, with the yeah. ice conditions, you know, that just made it worse. So we had this this major collision and Davy Boy wasn't wearing a seatbelt. You know, I remember it told Davey earlier in the trips that you should be wearing your seatbelt. At that time, uh, it wasn't against the law not to wear seatbelts, and Alberta was uh, the last province to hold out on that. And uh, Davey, you know, and that's just the way he was. He said, no, I'm not wearing a seatbelt, and he didn't. And so I was wearing a seatbelt, and, uh, you know, if I hadn't been, I would have been probably thrown right through the windshield. But as it turned out, Davey uh, 
went forward and hit his face right against the the, the dashboard, Oof. hit his head, and you know he had to get about I think about sixty, seventy stitches in his forehead. And Carl Moffat, who was sitting in the back, he'd been smoking a joint and was pretty much passed out uh, uh, for the whole trip. Um, he was lying in the back seat, and the spare tire came up, came uh, was flung forward, and hit him right in the leg from behind, and uh, had broken his leg. So basically so shattered it, right? He yeah. was because I yeah. remember he had he wore a brace for years, yeah. even when I started wrestling in ninety one, ninety two out here. That's he was right, still messed up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, and that was unfortunate, and uh, some so minor you have, injuries. Too. You have the head on collision, and then and then you like you're on the side of the road, no yeah. cell phones, no, no cell How phones, you? you know, and then checking you, on the. The passengers, you know, and you know, you're, you're you're in kind of a state of shock, right? I mean, and uh, um, you know, th- thank God nobody was was uh, fatally killed, you know, right. from, from our vehicle or the other vehicle. The the driver of the other vehicle was pretty seriously injured. I think he had ruptured his femur and he had to be hospitalized. And you know, I, I'm just thankful there there weren't any. Did you get but, Did you get any injuries? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think my back was out, my shoulder, just, yeah. just, but it, it was more just the shock of what had happened, you know, so. So do you guys still go and go to the show after? <laughs> well, no, the, the whole tour had to be canceled, oh, gotcha. which, was, which was really unfortunate, and I mean, we had to uh, sell crowds. I think it was uh, in, in Grand Prairie, and um, that was, was like the first leg of the tour, and then we were supposed to run a whole bunch of uh, cities in, in northern Alberta, and because uh three or four wrestlers had been injured you know we, we just had to cancel the whole tour so so it was you know an unfortunate thing did did, did did that ever happen like especially in the winter time if you're driving in february or march the van ever break down anywhere or oh, was many times uh bruce had been in a major accident uh, but that was back in 1981 he had mr hito and jerry morrow jim neidhart and this uh ring crew guy named kevin and uh bruce was driving uh, my dad's uh uh, Seville Cadillac, and they were driving to Lethbridge, and it was about minus 35 weather, and they were driving down Highway 2 South, and it used to be just a divided highway back then, and uh, he was going southbound, and this uh, semi-trailer uh, all of a sudden decided to turn left in a south direction, and uh, turn right in the, in the direction of uh, Bruce's vehicle, and uh, Bruce knew he couldn't stop, you know, and there's no way he could uh, stop to avoid hitting it, so he just slammed on the brakes, and, uh, um, you know, he's probably going 60, 70 miles an hour, and uh, Bruce said he just, he aimed at the uh, the back tire of this car, because if he hadn't, they would have probably gone right under the, the truck Gosh, and been uh, wow. decapitated, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, if you'd seen the vehicle, if you'd seen the, the damages, uh, this, the whole Cadillac, the whole front end was just pushed right in, right to the uh, the driver's seat. You know, you'd swear that nobody could have survived. But uh, Jim Neidhart was in the front seat, and uh, he, uh, he hit the dashboard, and uh, his nose was just hanging by a piece. Oof. You know, and uh, Bruce separated his shoulder, and uh, Mr. Hito, um, I think he, he separated his shoulder from the back seat, and Jerry Morrow's ankle was broken. And uh, after the collision, Bruce got out, and he was, like, in a state of shock. And uh, another truck came right past them, almost hit Bruce. Wow. You know, and Bruce could feel the wind uh, of this truck that went past him, and it, it smashed right into uh, the truck that, that, oh my uh, gosh, that yeah. Bruce had run into. You know, and, and this was about minus 35-degree uh, weather in January, so they had to wait about uh, 35 minutes for an ambulance to come from Calgary, and uh, they were hospitalized. But, yeah, we, we, we had... Uh, a f- you know, a, f- a few major accidents like that, and not surprising when you consider the number of uh, sure. miles they traveled, and uh, you know, always in uh, the you know the, the cold winter conditions. So, yeah. 
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Talk is Jericho. Now that's another thing about the Calgary promotion that was kind of legendary was the ribs. You always hear, like, if you could survive in Calgary with the ribs that were pulled on you with all the different guys. Was it a pretty heavy ribbing territory? Oh, it was, yeah. Um, you you know, it. probably not for the guys that were ribbed, you know, that had the yeah, They didn't like it, yeah. Down. No. Tell us about no. some of the ribs. And you don't have to give names if you don't want to. No, if you want um, to, you can. Dynamite Kid was was perpetrator of a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always pretty mischievous, but uh, sometimes it would be someone unassuming, some new guy that had maybe come in the territory, but... Um, Quite a few of them got X-laxed. You know, they would have uh, their their coffees or their hot chocolates, and uh, you know, an X-lax would be uh, <laughs> put in their cup, and they didn't realize it. You know, and uh, you know, and you, you isn't that a rib on you though? If you're in the car driving, you had to stop every oh, five. Yeah. Well, it's this one poor guy. I think Dynamite had done it to some poor guy named Ronnie Lee, who was a guy who would come up from Pittsburgh. And uh, um, anyway, the poor bastard. I think they were driving from Montana back to. Calgary and about every 20 minutes they had to stop on the highway so he could <laughs> was the rib on, right? shit his guts out on, on uh, in, in the ditch you know um, mm. um, there 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 are some pretty good ribs uh, the Mabel parties I think you've heard of them but uh, the, tell, tell, tell yeah. us about that well the Dave Rule who had been the booker for my dad and this this unfortunately going back a few years but um, they, they would do a Mabel party about once every three four years quite often would be a, a guy coming into the territory who didn't really know his way around, but uh, uh, the idea was that they were going to set him up with uh, some hot chick named Mabel who, who would be at some remote cabin uh, or acreage, you know, outside of the city. And, and usually it was uh, someplace in Airdrie, and uh, that was that was pretty far out of Calgary back then. You know, Airdrie wasn't even a, uh, a city back then. And um, uh, Dave Rule would, uh, would set it up, say, well, the, the girl's name is Mabel, and it's going to be a... A blind date, basically, we're going to bring you to uh, this location where she is. And, uh, you know, you can't tell any of the other wrestlers about her. You have to keep it uh, kayfabe. And uh, and anyway, uh, and, she, and she's gorgeous, you know, and this description of her being this uh, very hot uh, brunette and, uh, you know, what a, what a voluptuous body. And so they, they did it with... Uh, <laughs> Uh, about three or four wrestlers. Uh, Great Antonio was one of them. I think it was Mad Dog Vashon and Dave Rule had, had organized it. So uh, they brought Antonio to uh, this this place outside of Airdrie, and it was uh, uh, it was just a small cabin. It's like a farmhouse. And uh, anyway, they they brought Antonio into the the living room of the house and said, uh, "Now you wait here, and uh, we'll, we'll bring uh, Mabel out to see you." And all of a sudden. Uh, uh, there's a shotgun that goes off, and uh, and it was Dave Rule's brother Henry, you know, saying, "Mabel, you, f- cut, you, you bitch, you know, okay, what, you know." And the idea was that he had caught her, you know, uh, cheating, cheating on him, on him, you know. And all of a sudden, uh, you, hear, you hear the gunshot, and then Dave Rule would come out uh, with blood coming down his chest and say, "He got me." F- 
shot me, you know, Antonio, run for your life, run for your life, you know, uh, you know, before he gets you, you know, and, uh, you know, Antonio the Great was about 400 pounds, you know, and he's running down this, this uh, field, you know, and it's pitch dark out, and there's cow shit in the field everywhere, and it's total darkness, and running through barbed wire fences, and uh, no cars or anything, you know, there's no, you know, it was probably uh, 20 miles from uh, Highway 2 where they were, and uh, eventually I think he flagged down some RCMP officer and said, there's been a shooting, you know, there's been a shooting. I was set up with a date, and uh, I went to this uh, this farmhouse, and I heard a gunshot, and then my friend Dave Rule was shot, and I think he, he's been left to die, you know, so, but... Uh, and, Stuff like that to pull uh, in the young guys. Well, yeah, and, and so they, they, they did this with about three or four wrestlers. I know Antonio the Great was one of them, and then uh, John, Dar- John Jardine, who is, later became the spoiler, they, they did it with him, and I guess he was so pissed off, so... Uh, Upset. Usually, they would they would find out a week or two after they'd come into the dressing room the following week, and they'd see Dave Rule there and say, "Dave, what happened to you? I thought you were you were killed. You were shot, you know." And Dave'd say, "Yeah, they, he grazed me, you know, but I but I got out of there and I'm okay." But uh, but uh, Don Jardine was so pissed off, and he he always. Uh, 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 held it against the promotion, and I think one one guy came up to him, I think in Texas a few years later, and said, "Aren't you the guy that uh, they pulled that Mabel party on?" I guess he hauled off and just clocked his <laughs> clocked guy. with the he face. Was so pissed off, you know, so bitter about it. But and I think the last one they did was on some uh, some big fat guy that was trying to break in named Mel McWilliams. They used to hang around Abdul the Butcher all the time, and you know, and he was always trying to be kind of a, a show off and a know it all and uh, trying to break in the business, but he really didn't want to pay his dues or uh, you know go to the dungeon to get stretched by Stu. So, so uh, they fixed Mel up, and uh, and I guess uh, when when they did it with him, he he was running through. Uh, these fields and uh, his shoes were off and he was he was running and uh again i I guess he flagged down an rcmp car and said and he was completely out of breath you know and he and he said there's been a shooting there's been a shooting he said they shot dave rule you know and this rcmp officer said well dave rule the wrestler you know he was a very well-known wrestler so then i guess they they called my dad on the phone and said we're investigating a possible shooting here and do you know anything about it Stu said i don't know anything about it you know i didn't hear anything but but Stu said we better cool off in the Mabel parties because, uh, you know, the police are kind the of... The cops know about so, it, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, so... But, was, uh, yeah. Was Stu still still uh, working with guys in the dungeon and stretching them in that time frame, 86, 87? Oh, was yeah. He, really? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Wow. He, uh, um, you know, he, he was still a pretty tough old bastard, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, he had, he had slowed down a little bit, but he was still uh, he was still pretty lethal. He could do a lot of damage. Um, it wasn't until he had uh, torn his quad muscle... And this was uh, doing some kind of a appearance at a WCW Starcade where they're honoring all these uh, legend wrestlers. And uh, he had stepped off some platform uh, when um, they had called his name, and it was like it was totally dark. And and uh, and I guess he uh, when he fell, he mm-hmm. uh, tore his quad muscle. And after that, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of trouble walking, and um, you know, he he had a lot of difficulty training guys after that. But right, right up until. Uh, you know, the early 90s, you know, he, he wow, was still okay. working out and stretching guys and, uh, um, you know, and, and and putting in through hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, uh, you mentioned, so, so I'm watching Stampede. I'm going to college because they said, you know, you should get a, actually Jesse Ventura said, get a college degree before you go into wrestling. And about six months before I graduated, I was signed up to go to Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp. 
and Stampede Wrestling closed. It was probably about February of 80 or we, February we of 90. Uh, yeah, I think it was about the end of 89 that yeah. we closed. Yeah. And I was going in June of yeah. 90. So what was the final decision to, to, to make you guys decide that we got to shut this down? You know, I think uh, there are a few factors. Uh, you know, I think the car accident that we had had in July of that year. Oh, the one with the uh, Davy and everybody? With the, with the van, yeah. Why, uh, why is that? Um, I think just, just the reality, you know, that... Uh, mm. uh, Wasn't fun anymore? No, you know, and r- r- rushing to a show because we were late, which was largely uh, due to uh, wrestlers just deciding yeah. they, they didn't want to work on the show anymore. You know, they, they didn't want to travel on the trips. I think there was a, there was a lot of... Uh, a dissension in the promotion when we brought Dynamite in as the the booker, uh, which was around uh, uh, the end of 1988, and I think uh, there, there's high hopes and expectations that uh, with his drawing power and Davies, because they had just left uh, the WWF was after the the Jacques Rougeau uh, fight with him and that incident, and yeah. uh, they came to our promotion. And a lot of high hopes and expectations that uh, they would turn the promotion around, and Stu um, felt that. Uh, it was time for a change, you know, and uh, Bruce was kind of pushed to the side, and we, we brought Dynamite in, and unfortunately uh, it didn't work out. He kind of hot-shotted the uh, territory with a lot of gimmicks, and uh, it's like one week we'd have a strap match, a week after it would be like a, a cage match, and, and it was overkill, you know, and uh, you know, and the gates just started to drop and drop, and, uh, um, you know, and there, there just wasn't uh, harmony with a lot of the wrestlers, and uh, then this incident where we... Uh, punched Bruce in the jaw basically because some of the wrestlers had instigated or exaggerated something Bruce had said, you know, uh, about Dynamite and Davy. And, you know, I, you know, I'll be honest, there was, there was a lot of roid rage. There, there was a lot of uh, ribbing that was going on, guys getting mm-hmm. uh, halcyoned and uh, ex-laxed. I mean, it was happening almost on, on a nightly basis. And, you know, a lot of the wrestlers... Uh, uh, didn't even feel comfortable working. You can in that see that in the talent anymore. too, because you're talking about '86, '87 with Owen, uh, you know, Pillman, Benoit, Muckinson, Karachi Vice, Steve Blackman, Vulcan Singh, all yeah. these guys that Rip Rogers, Kerry Brown, yeah. and then as it gets to that '89 stage. It's getting really thin. Yeah. I think it was Ricky Starr or something like this or something. I can't yeah, remember. Ricky Rice. Ricky, was in, yeah, you but, know, but uh, then there's like the they got like I can't remember the guys' names because they're very forgettable. Yeah. Forgettable to me. But the guys towards the end of the of the promotion were not the the, no. the great performers like you had no. just a year or two earlier. No, um, there are a few other factors. This this fellow named Fred May who was uh, um, involved with the distribution of yeah. the TV show. He. Uh, he was doing a terrible job. Um, his his TV production skills were awful. The the the, the TV show uh, had really suffered. You know the the camera work was lousy. Um, you know it, it, and we were so far behind the WWF in terms of of TV production, special effects, and you know audiences were demanding more now. You know you know when when you're seeing. Uh, uh, the high-tech WWE shows with four or five camera angles and, uh, um, you know, all, all the special effects and uh, the ring entrances. And, we you know, we just become too... Uh, I think talent outdated, too, Ross. you, know, you got to have too. the talent, right? We did. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we'd lost a lot of our best talent. Owen had, uh, had gone to uh, WWF. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Pelman had gone to well, WWF. The Japanese connection was yeah. gone. Yeah. It was just kind of becoming yeah, more... We, it was looking very indie towards the yeah, end. It was, yeah. you know. And so, so you know, and... and uh, Unfortunately, bringing Dynamite Davy back, although there was initially uh, 
uh, some big gates there, you know, it peaked and it, mm-hmm. and it just dropped. And, and before you knew it, it was just sort of that chain reaction with all our towns, you know, the towns that were, were steadily drawing uh, once every two or three weeks, like Red Deer and Medicine Hat, all of a sudden, you know, they're going they, they down. Drawing yeah. And, you know, and, and it was tough. We were, we were just losing way too much money. And, and um, you know, my dad decided that was enough. Was it know. Stu's decision? Yeah. We're done. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it, it was probably unfortunate for guys like you and Lance Storm and Rick Titan because, you uh, if you'd had that opportunity to we just break in in Calgary, you know, and, and be working five nights a week, maybe you wouldn't have gotten uh, rich, but I think you would have had the chance to uh, work more regularly as it was, you know, you, you yeah. uh, uh, I think you were working at the uh, Victoria Park Community Center. Well, actually, there. before that, it was the yeah. Silver Dollar Action Center. Silver Dollar Action. Were you working uh, for Frank Fred Sisson. May on those shows? Fred, Fred May was CNWA yeah, when Stampede CNWA. closed. Yeah. I didn't Excuse know you worked on those shows. Yes, he, he reopened his yeah, CNWA, and of that. course, it's going to be the biggest thing, and yeah. you know all that sort of thing. And that was probably around January, February of '91, maybe even November of '90. Yeah, but you it could, was. Like, it was kind of in the, yeah. in the last. So you got your, your start there. I did, but it yeah. was only, it was only once a week. Yeah. TVs every couple yeah. of weeks. Bull, Bull, Bob Brown was booking. Yeah, that's right. So it was it, you know the, the, some of the, the talent was the same. You had Johnny Smith was there, and Gama yeah. was Duke there, Myers and, and Duke Myers, Duke Myers, Rogers, a lot yeah. of guys, you know, yeah. and then some younger guys like Brett Como. Mike Lazansky. So there were some guys to work with, but they just didn't have. You know the desire, the money, the the no. wherewithal. I think if you, like we said earlier, when you come to Calgary, Stampede Wrestling and the Hearts are synonymous with wrestling. Yeah, I think it's the reason why you know with WWE. Even we have a show on Saturday. We're doing the Corral now. It's always a fun show, but it's not like the glory days of the Saddle Dome where you would go on a house show and yeah. draw ten thousand people. Hearts and Stampede are synonymous with wrestling in Calgary. And yeah, the, absolutely. And a big hole was left when when Stampede yeah. closed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, a big, a big void. So, um, you know, but uh, it, it was great that that um, you and Lance did as well as you did because you know I I know uh, when when you joined the, the the Hart Brothers camp, it you know it was uh, there was no Hart Brothers. No, there weren't. You know, and that <laughs> was showed up on the first day. Yeah, you know, and I, I, <laughs> I think uh, that that was uh, pretty misrepresented. You know, um, Bruce and Keith had actually run the Hart Brothers camp. For about three years, and and from that group, they 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 launched Pillman and Biff Wellington. A couple other guys were pretty decent uh, locals, but didn't go that far, like Jeff Wheeler. I think there was Ken Johnson and mm-hmm. a few others, but some pretty good local guys. Uh, uh, Gary Albright, you know, he he trained there as well. Uh, um, and then uh, Keith and Bruce kind of had a split, and they went their own separate ways. And uh, you know, Bruce still ran. Uh, his camp, he called it Hart Brothers Camp, and then Keith got involved with the Zed Langley, yeah. you know, and uh, um, and and uh, he called his uh, Hart Brothers Camp, you know. So, but you know, I, I think it was very misleading because when you sh- showed up there, there was no Hart Brothers, mm-hmm. you know. And I think Keith was there for what one or two the first day <laughs> sessions. That <laughs> to was take about the money, it, you know, and to take the money. money, and then you know, it was, uh, <laughs> well, it wasn't around much after yeah. that. So, so you know, I'm amazed, you guys. Uh, you learned the trade that well. I mean, I think you, you know, you obviously uh, had some talent and you learn from each but other. But even to this day, like, you know, with Lance's school, there's just something about the city of Calgary. Yeah. That's, if you're a young wrestler wanting to get into the business, it has a mystique about it. Calgary yeah. is just like, it's a wrestling city. No matter what, for, for, from now until the end of time, there's always going to be that magic for, for, from Stampede being here and setting the tone yeah. for some 40 odd, 40 odd years, even though it was 25 years ago. It still has that, 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 that memory, you yeah. know? It, it really I does. I think it always will. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Lance is actually 
uh, brought some pretty decent guys into yes. the game. You know, some have gone to the WWF. There's ten of them, I think, that yeah. are signed in one stage or another. Yeah, you know, so, you know so. he's he's a very good teacher, and uh, he's he's run an excellent school. So so you know, there are some opportunities here. Although I I wish uh, you know the the. the, the there was a promotion that ran even three, four times mm-hmm. a week because it's really hard to advance if you're only wrestling once, sure. or, once or twice a month. You know, it's it's really tough. Last few questions yeah. for you, Ross. It's a twofold question. Number one, what, what it doesn't have to be just one. What are your favorite angles around that time frame from '86 to '88 that, that were really? Is there one or two that stand out? It's like this one was one of the best. Um, there, there are a few. Um, the, the the Jason Zodiac program was it was excellent because it got over great for the five or six months uh we we had them together um uh another good one was uh we had we were the first ones to ever have like a three-way match and we called mm. it the uh bermuda, bermuda, bermuda triangle, triangle. <laughs> and that it had uh hero Hasi, gamma singh and um uh and the Viet Cong and uh it was the three of them all fighting each other at one time, you know, and uh, now you see three-way matches pretty regularly in WWF, but this was something, or WWE, but this was uh, it was a novel concept back then. Um, you know, n- never had you seen three guys fighting each other all at one time, and it's a, it was like two heels that had turned on each other. It had this split and uh, one baby face, but the heels were still fighting against each other as well. So, And uh, that was huge, you know, it, it just because it had never, never uh, been done before. before. And, and um, yeah, uh, another interesting one, I think we, we were the first ones to ever have uh, a male versus female. You know, there uh, we had Athel Foley fight Wendy Richter, and we called it the Battle of Sexes. I think that was in 83, maybe a little before that, that time period, but uh, this is before Wendy went to the WWF and had her her uh, launch there as the champion but um um uh, it was it was an interesting thing because Athel Foley was uh, supposedly JR's son and he's wearing these diaper trunks in the ring. Was his name the, Ethel? Ethel Foley? How do you spell it? A T H O L. Athel. Yeah, okay. so of course everyone would call him <laughs> asshole, you know. So that's why Bruce gave him the name Athel Foley, but um, yeah, if you have a list yeah, he's the Athel. Yeah, yeah, and uh he was kind of the the wimpy little snivelly crybaby son of JR and probably 170 pounds and uh anyway he uh uh was uh wimping out i guess when uh when uh jr cost wendy uh, and joyce grable a, a tag team title match so then she she went after uh john and, Ath- and athel tried to come to john's uh defense and then uh, she just started pounding on him so <laughs> so we had uh a match where they fought each other the week after and it was it was interesting because it was the first time you ever saw a male fight a female there there had been like tag matches you know where two girls fought sure, sure, two sure. males you know or, um you know and this is long before china and some of the you know and uh um, yeah, yeah, all the you know the the, 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 the revolution, the, mon- you yeah, know, the, the monster, the heavier women. women, you know, so uh, uh, amazing Kong, some of them. But and it was it was amazing because she just kicked Athel Foley's uh, ass around the ring everywhere. And, <laughs> Athel Foley, and, that. Yeah, David Schultz saw the uh, the taping of it, and uh, he was so uh, uh, amused by it, he sent it to Hulk Hogan, you know, and uh, and I guess uh, Hulk, um, Hulk was was so impressed with it, the, he passed it on to Vince, and uh, they decided to bring Wendy in and make her a, a major her uh, baby face, you know, and they kind of launched that angle with her and Cindy Lauper and I think the fabulous Moolah. But, That's how it all started. But, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it did, you know, but those were just kind of novel uh, concepts we did. Um, 
that had uh, never been seen before. Yeah, no, you know, and uh, the ladder matches we did, but those those dated back to Dan Crawford, who was a very innovative uh, wrestler, and uh, he was working with Tor Kamada, and we just did incredible business with that, you know. So yeah, is is there what's your favorite match that you've seen? Is there one that stands out that oh, you'll always remember? You know, probably from 1969, uh, one hour Broadway with Dory Funk and Billy Robinson, when Dory was the world champion, and uh, it was just a classic match, two baby faces going at it. Uh, the classic British style against the classic American style. They had never uh, worked with each other before, um, but, you know, they were both just uh, fantastic workers. You know, Dory was, uh, I think, in his second year as world champion, and it was just amazing. They, it was nonstop, you know, for, for one hour, you know, just one move after another, backbreakers, suplexes, uh, so many uh, incredible false finishes, you know, and they looked like they could have gone another 20 minutes mm-hmm. at the end, but that certainly uh, stood out to me as, you know, one of the best matches I'd ever seen. It was just a, a classic babyface match, and then on the other scale, uh, you know, some of the, the bloodbaths with Archie, the Stomper, Goldie, and Abdul, the Butcher, and you know, neither one wanted to sell for each other, but, you know, and uh, uh, they, they'd be brawling all outside the ring into the crowd, you know, and, and the fans were just going nuts because it was uh, it's like Godzilla fighting King Kong, you know, the, the two ultimate uh, dominant heels, you know, going at it. Mm-hmm. and uh, um, But, you know, it was it was a brawl, you know, like, it was just amazing, like long before uh, ECW and the hardcore matches, you know, and uh, they didn't really like each other, you know, and neither one wanted to sell much for the other, but, uh, you know, but it was incredible heat and mayhem, you know, so, so you know, it certainly uh, stands out in my memory. Do people still come up to you and, and talk about Stampede Wrestling? Uh, all the time. Yeah, you know? I'm sure. Um, I, I run into a lot of people and say they, they miss the old days of, of uh, Stampede and, and just the, the weekly shows they could go to. Like every Friday, that was a, a pastime for so many fans. You know, it was long before we had the, the, the Flames and uh, the Hitmen and all the, the local sports franchises and, you know, all the, uh, the, the TV exposure of wrestling. But, you know, a lot of the, the older fans, you know, who, who just said that they like to go there every Friday and uh, that was their big event, you know, mm-hmm. sit in the smoke-filled uh, pavilion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was it, you know, yeah. they, to, to go there every, every Friday. And, um, you know, it was uh, a great event for them. You know, it was, uh, mm-hmm. um, it was, uh, it was, so I, I run into a lot of those fans and, uh, you know, just, just people who grew up uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s and, uh um, there's not too many of those stars that are left. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I get Brett's retired now, and uh, you know, we we we've lost so we've a lot of them. Away, yeah, yeah, away, but, yeah. Uh, um, you know, some memories of those stars yeah. for sure. So, so I do run into a lot of fans, and even the uh, some of the wrestlers we try and get together and have uh, alumni or uh, Hall Dinners of Fame inductions stuff, yeah. for. So Leo Burke, uh, Gamma Singh, the Cuban Assassin, Jerry Moore. Jerry Moore, some of them, great, you know, great performer. Very, you know, great, great performers. Yeah. So uh, we, you know, we uh, try and uh, meet with them once a year, either at a luncheon or a, a banquet somewhere. You know, it's it's, it's really nice uh, yeah. to, to see those guys. And uh, yeah. Johnny Smith's another one. So, um, great so guy. You know, I love a, lot, Smith. a lot of great memories. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing some of those memories with me, Ross. It was it was a great uh, great time in my life too, being yeah. a wrestling fan, watching Stampede, and inspiring me to get into the business. So. Oh, for sure, Chris. I'm glad uh, you were inspired, and uh, and congratulations to you for how well your career's done and how how well your career's gone, and uh, you've been a credit to the industry. Thank you, Ross. And in the meantime, and in between time, that's it. Another edition of Talk is Jericho. See you next week. Okay. (laughs) 
Thanks to Ross Hart for sharing all the stories from Stampede Wrestling. It was great to sit down and talk with them. Uh, and you know what else is really great? Team Tiger Awesome's take on today's news. This is the news with Team Tiger Awesome. In Singapore, a business called The Fragment Room offers customers a chance to break stuff with a baseball bat in 30-minute intervals. The stress-relieving activity allows you to smash fragile objects such as teacups, champagne glasses, and your own crumbling sense of self. In teeny tiny baby news, I'd like to have my toys back. Give me my toys back. I'm going to tell mom if you don't give me my toys back. Wow. And now a check on the hyperbole index. I told you a million times is trading at, like, the highest ever, while the number of greatests of all time continues to climb, even though literally everyone already knew that, making this index the most pointless thing man has ever created. For more sort of, but not really useful news, listen to the Team Tiger Awesome Show every Sunday on the Jericho Network on Podcast One. So recalculous, man. Go subscribe to the Team Tiger Awesome Show at Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave them a five-star rating and review as well. As a matter of fact, give all the Jericho Network podcasts five-star ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts. Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. The Raven Effect. The Flagship Show, Keeping It 100 with Conan. And, of course, Beyond the Darkness, get your paranormal fix every weekday with brand new episodes uh, every day, Monday to Friday. And you can get in on their True Crime Tuesdays as well. Dave Schrader and Tim Dennis, the two guys behind Beyond the Darkness, are doing a weekly True Crime Tuesday podcast. You can get that by signing up at Patreon.com for just 5 bucks a month. You'll get a new episode every single Tuesday, and the episodes are all commercial-free, no commercials. So sign up now at Patreon.com. Uh, big thank you to you, and one last big thank you to all the tremendous sponsors of this episode. DDP Yoga, go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. You're getting 20% off the DDP. DDP Yoga Now app and all DDP Yoga related match. ZipRecruiter, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Jericho. Post your job for free. Get the employee that you want. Saks Underwear, 20% off your fat spouches at SaxUnderwear.com slash Jericho. Once you wear Saks, you'll never go back. Little Caesars, get the extra most bestest pizza for just six bucks at participating locations. And a true car, buy your car quicker, faster, cheaper, easier. Thank you so much for listening. Keep listening for the 60 second AP news headlines coming up next and next Wednesday we got the WWE tag team champions of the world Sheamus and Cesaro are going to be here and what a conversation that is a Swiss an Irish and a Canadian walk into a hotel in Japan and have an hour long conversation you are going to love it thank you so much have a great weekend in the meantime and in between time stay hard stay hungry peace love and hugs and a big yeah boy Listen to new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com.